I think the vast majority of parents, and this is understandable, but the vast majority of parents are parenting from a place of fear at least some of the time. Welcome to With You Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Tara. I'm a marriage and family therapist and professor. And I'm a birth doula and educator. And we're married to each other. We've raised four kids. And we're in professions, as you see, that deal with coming alongside people. Right. So in this podcast, we're going to share what we've learned about relationships and life transitions. We'll do that by sharing our own experiences, by interviewing people who have a great story to tell. Mm -hmm. And we've got some expert interviews to, to give us some even better information. It's going to be so good. Let's get started. Please join us. Hey there, everybody. We're talking about adolescence today, and we're really excited about this topic because we've been raising those kinds of kids, and it's a time that's a big transitional time for everybody in their life. And so we're really excited to have a guest with us, Mark Ostriker. Um, And Mark is a veteran youth worker and a founding partner in the youth cartel, providing resources, training and coaching for church youth workers. He's also authored a ton of books. He's a speaker, writer and consultant. And we also happen to have a personal connection. That's right. Marco, Marco and I go back and Tara go back a long way. I think Marco and I have the same uh, spirit animal that has one foot in adolescence and one foot in being in you know, later in life. Uh, and so, you know, I think we met, didn't we meet 1994, something around that? Oh, my. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think that's probably about right. Yeah. Yep. Th- when I when I think of you, the first thing that comes to mind is you teaching me how to floss my brain, really good <laughs> mental hygiene. And I can, I'll, I'll never forget you putting a necklace in your mouth. <gasps> no. It was dental in, my, floss. in your nose. In, my nose. in, your, in your nose. nose. <laughs> oh, so I did forget. It goes in your nose. You snort up. It comes out your mouth, and you floss your brain for good mental hygiene. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah oh, so it was man. when David was in his master's program um, at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, and you were the youth pastor there at that time, yep. right? And yep. we were volunteer youth workers. So we got to see you swallow goldfish and and do your whole. <laughs> that's that's the way we think of you. Yeah. So you're gonna have to tell us the real real stuff you're doing maybe, now. Maybe maybe what do you remember of these two little twenty something year old people that were volunteering in youth ministry with you with middle schoolers? Were you really that young? Yeah, we, we were, were twenty four, we twenty five, something like that. We were newlyweds. Oh man. Yeah. We were just I, out I of mean, adolescence. I all I remember is that you were great volunteers and good friends. So, <laughs> and of course, and then of course, Tara did some work for the organization I lead now for a period of time too. So that connection lasted for yeah. a few more years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was really good. You you really taught us kind of collaborating together on the importance of adolescence as a developmental stage and mm. uh, the need for the church to really and adults and leaders and coaches to really appreciate 
adolescence for who the unique human beings that they are, even though they smell yeah. and act weird. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Maybe especially because. Maybe especially because they smell and act weird. Yeah. But I, I think that was a that was a beautiful thing that's really affected us for our life and our parenting. And so just at the beginning, we want to thank you for that. Uh, the, that's the, great. They started from a position of strength with you and have just kind of gone on for these 30 some or uh, some years. I guess I'm not supposed to use yes. the number some years. <laughs> But uh, it's been a lot <laughs> and and it, we're still doing it, which is remarkable. I think the the most interesting thing is I've seen a lot of uh, youth pastors, youth uh, volunteers do it for a season and then back away. Right. And you're in your yeah. 40th year yeah. doing this. Yeah. What yeah. what keeps you going? What keeps you interested in sixth grade kids? Yeah. I mean, there's probably a handful of things. Um but I do, I just really enjoy teenagers. And specifically, as you guys know, uh, I just love junior hires. So um, it, for the last 24 years, since I moved to San Diego, I've uh, been leading organizations that train adults who work with teenagers. But I've been a volunteer, like you guys used to be, uh, with the church that I'm a part of. So this is my, I'm starting my 24th year as a volunteer with the junior high ministry at my church. Uh, and I just finished an eighth grade guys, small group that I had for a couple of years. Uh, a couple of weeks ago was our last meeting. So, uh, but I just really enjoy them. They can <laughs> drive me nuts. <laughs> uh, and I think part of the junior high thing for me, uh, there's a couple factors. One is, uh, as I got to understand them, my affection for them mm. went up, mm. right? If you don't understand, and I think we're going to talk some about those realities, but yeah. if you don't understand them, then it's pretty easy to just draw the conclusion they're annoying. You know, there's that old Mark Twain quote that, you know, you should keep a kid in a barrel and when they're, <laughs> you know, when I don't remember the ages, when they're 12 you should start to feed them through the hole and then when they're 14 you should plug the hole right and there <laughs> there is this kind of general perspective that teenagers are just annoying in fact the even harsher view if we're really honest is that most people see them as broken and incapable mm -hmm. uh, and maybe that's something we can return to because i i, I in our conversation because i think it's really important um and I just don't see them that way. I see them as amazing. Now, my small group of guys drove me crazy all the time. And a successful week in our small group came about once every two or three weeks, right? <laughs> and success for me was just that we'd have 10 or 15 minutes of focus. <laughs> but I enjoy their playfulness and their weirdness too. So I, I think that's a that's a big part of it. I, I also think that... Um, there's a vocational aspect of it for me, right? Yeah, and yeah. that uh, because my day job is training youth workers, I just don't feel like I would have the same credibility if I'm not actually in the trenches with real teenagers. I, I've refused to be that guy who talks about my experience with teenagers 20 years ago. Yeah. I, 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 wanna, I wanna be with real teenagers who are not impressed by me, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So yeah. with with kind of that driving you crazy, how I think youth workers, 
pastors, parents get to that place where they're just driving us nuts? How do you regulate? How do you respond? How do you kind of take care of that irritability inside and not letting it necessarily feed into the relationship with them? Yeah, it's a great question. (laughs) One that I regularly do not succeed at. Yeah, I mean, the last uh, teaching night with my small group this uh, just about a month ago, um, they just, I had really prepared and had a great plan for what we were going to do, you know, having a meaningful discussion that night. And they just weren't having it. I mean, it was our last, you know, regular night together and they were squirrely and uh, (laughs) chaotic and just silly and uh, you know, halfway through, I just turned to my co-leader and was like, I'm done. Like, (laughs) this is not going to happen tonight, you know? So, I mean, I do think that there's, um, there's a general principle where I try to freak out on the inside and not allow that to spill into the relationship. I try to give them space to be their squirrely selves and realize that, there's all kinds of reasons why they're acting the way they are, even if it's uh, in a way that I don't appreciate or, uh, or, or find helpful in the moment, um, but to stay connected, right? Yeah. It's like with my own kids uh, who are now 28 and 24, but when they were teenagers, over and over again, I just had to remind myself, I, I don't want to do things that will forfeit the relationship. Mm-hmm. I've, I've got to stay in a place of meaningful connection here. So like, what is the value of being right if I forfeit the relationship, mm-hmm. right? And so it's it's that pursuing uh, understanding, pursuing time together, pursuing making meaningful memories in, in a family context. I really want to pursue having fun together. All of that kind of stuff yeah. uh, has been really important for me. Yeah, that's helpful when you say understanding them helps you appreciate them. Uh, It helps to know their context, you know, and and not to take it too personally. Yeah. Right. Because you tend to think they're really trying to make my life difficult. Right. I mean, so often if I if I can pause just for a, a, a beat, then I can realize that whatever's going on, they're revealing to me something about their brains mm. or something about uh, the world in which they live. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not be able to articulate it. If they're older teenagers, they might be able to t- articulate it, particularly with some help and some coaching. But like the younger teens that I often uh, am in a room with, they just often don't have the ability to articulate what it is they're feeling. They don't even know what they're feeling. Um, and, uh, so to have some patience and all of that is really born out of a deeper level of understanding of of the changes that they're going through. Well, I, uh, talk about understanding. I love this book that you wrote (laughs) a little while ago, uh, understanding, yeah, understanding your young teen and, uh, the kind of few words to parents that you have bookending this book at the beginning, it's, you're not alone. And I think you talked about your co-leader at youth group of that needing to realize you're not in this alone. You're not dealing with the craziness. There's, there's people, there's a team. Um, And even if you are alone in dealing with the adolescent, you're not alone in that other parents are going through the exact same thing. 
And then right. you end it by kind of the fun that you're talking about of enjoy the journey. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm in curious of how you've learned to enjoy the journey, what you've learned from teens over the years in understanding them that's kind of helped you enjoy this journey, both with yours and, and all your volunteer teenagers. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we could talk for five hours on that question, <laughs> man. There's so many ways we could go with it. Um, I guess maybe I would uh, start with one nature thing and one nurture thing. That's okay? great. That's uh, perfect. And I mean, we could probably, again, I could parse it in many other ways, but I'll start with these two. So I, I mean, even I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about adolescence, they either only think about the nature side, which are, I would say, are the developmental realities that have always been there, right? There's this myth mm. that adolescence is new, mm. uh, that it's only existed for a little over a hundred years. And that is just not true. Um, if you look through history, you feel you find people talking about youth pretty much in the same way that people talk about them today. And the reality is there are these developmental realities. From my Christian perspective, I would say they were God's creation intentions. Mm. There is this developmental life stage marked by a ton of change, technically the second most significant period of change in the lifespan of a human, but the first most is birth two years old, and there's not a self-awareness of those. So the reality that teenagers are aware of the changes that they're going through, I think makes it the most significant season of change in life. And so those changes, the changes in how their brains work, Mm -hmm. uh, the onset of abstract thinking, uh, obviously changes in their bodies, Mm -hmm. significant changes in their emotions and in their relationships and in their belief systems or faith. All of that stuff is really important to understand. If I think if anybody who's working with teenagers, whether it's a vocational thing or a parent or a coach or whatever, doesn't understand the implications of the onset of abstract thinking, we're always going to be limited <laughs> in our effectiveness with them. Yeah. We can return to that if you want. Yeah. Then the other side, the nurture side, what I, I would say are the developmental or excuse me, the cultural realities mm-hmm. that are shaping teenagers today that are unique to our time. And that really particularly started uh, more in the last, say, 70 years uh, with the onset of modern youth culture. But in the last 20 years, we've seen some really significant changes. So I would I would suggest that there are three tasks that all teenagers are wrestling with. And this, you could say, is a nature thing. This is, I think, part of uh, the design, right? Mm-hmm. Those three tasks are identity, wrestling with who I am, mm-hmm. autonomy, which mm-hmm. is an agency question. It's how am I unique and different, but it's really how do my choices matter? Yeah. Like, does it really make a difference in the trajectory of my life life, if I make this choice or that choice? And could I influence my family and my friends and maybe even influence the world? That's the autonomy question. Um, some people use the word purpose for that, but I, I think it can be confusing if we're talking about finding a purpose in life. And it's really more about agency. Yeah. And then the third one is affinity or belonging to whom and where do I belong? Now, the shift in modern youth culture is that the priority of those three have reshuffled a couple times. Hmm. So in the 50s and 60s, in the earliest stages of modern youth culture, identity was the most important of those three. Hmm. And then there were some changes in our culture 
um, in the late 60s, early 70s, kind of the acceptance that youth culture is not something that's going to go away. It's something that's here to stay. And with that, and then in almost in response to the Vietnam War, there was like a foil to react against. The autonomy question became the most important of the three. And so the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we saw the average teenager viewing the world through the lenses of their autonomy search. And then we saw another shift around the turn of millennium and belonging, the search for belonging has become the most important of those three. Mm. And the reason for that is fascinating. Do, can, do you want me to take a yeah. second yes. to explain it? I'd love <laughs> yeah. to hear the, that. The reason is fascinating. People uh, assume that it's because of the rise of the internet, but that I would suggest was just rocket fuel on the change that was already happening. Okay. Mm. The change was because of my generation, not yours, uh, boomers. So we were the first generation in the history of the United States, at least, that looked backward in terms of our aspirations rather than forward. So every generation before boomers looked toward the perceived benefits of old age. Mm. I'm going to have my extended family around me. Nobody's moved away. Everybody's right here. They will esteem me. They will care for me. There were these perceived benefits mm. of old age. And boomers were the first to say, I don't want that. And besides, everybody's moved around and the family structure is different. Instead, I want to hold on to the behaviors and norms, practices, and belongings of my youth. And in doing so, we elevated youth culture and worshipped it. Hmm. The problem is for teenagers, they don't want to be worshipped. They might seem like it sometimes, <laughs> but adolescent, adolescents, because of the autonomy task, which didn't go away, they're like, I, no, we don't want to be. We don't want to be the dominant culture in America. And so, youth culture uh, responded to that by splintering. And an enormous change in youth culture that's different from the experience that any of us who are over 35 uh, experienced is that youth culture used to be kind of one monolithic thing. Of course, there were groups and cliques and other things, but it is no longer. There, there's a ministry called Young Life you've probably heard of that their approach to reaching teenagers on a high school campus, their instruction was reach the key influencers and you can reach the whole campus. It was kind of like a, a Reaganomics trickle down of <laughs> nice eighties so social. Yeah. Nice eighties reference right? <laughs> of teenage social influence. That's gone. That is gone. And so today there are thousands of youth cultures and that created this vacuum of belonging teenagers who always were looking for a place of belonging. We all are. And I would suggest that's a good and beautiful thing. It's a reflection of the fact that we're made in the image of God, belonging pre-existed creation. And yet uh, there is this white hot need for teenagers <laughs> now. And so, again, I use that term uh, that it's the lenses through which they view the world and everything. The average teenager in the 50s and 60s was viewing the world and themselves through identity lenses. Who am I will tell me how my choices matter and where I belong. The average teenager today is looking at, through at themselves and God and the world and their parents and everything else through belonging lenses. Where I find belonging will tell me who I am and how my choices matter. Mm -hmm. And that is such a significant shift. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a real challenge for so many of us. It's not a, an impossible challenge, but it just means that we need to prioritize 
For example, in the work that I do with youth workers, we need to prioritize unconditional belonging prior to belief. And what we used to say is in the church and most social institutions, hey, if you want to belong, we've got a pathway for you. First, you need to believe like us. Then you need to behave like us. And then you can have belonging. Mm -hmm. Nobody will tolerate that anymore. Right. And so now it's I want to experience belonging first. And if it offers me a, an experience that helps me understand what's true, because we understand what's true now based on experience, that's another shift, yeah. then I will try on your behaviors. I will try your practices in church setting that might be worship or attendance or uh, all kinds of things like that, right? And to, again, to see if there's something meaningful in it, then I will consider the belief behind it. So mm. that it's just a really significant shift. Yeah. We want our teenagers, if from a parenting perspective, to experience meaningful belonging in the place of our families, too. And that is not a given. That's something we have to work at. Yeah, that's that was what I was going to ask, too. And for parents, then this this belonging first and then participating second is a big shift, especially for boomers, for those of us who are children of the 80s. Uh, that's a that's a hard mindset because it's like, well, you're in this family, you're part of the family, the family identity leads to belonging, and you're saying it's it's different now. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as teenagers try to continue to work out that it, the identity and autonomy tasks haven't gone away; they're still really important, right? So, as teenagers are trying to figure out how do I differentiate from my parents which is one of the significant tasks of adolescence, right? How do I figure out how I'm my own unique person? Um, that can sometimes feel like it's in tension with, you know, you're part of this family, right? Mm -hmm. yes. It's a good, another reason why I encourage parents, you know, freak out on the inside just because your teenager says or does something that feels like it's at, at odds with your family values, just, it doesn't necessitate that they're like going to violate your family values, right? <laughs> they're, they're often just working out that task. It's a big part of them. It's a big part of a, the beautiful thing that they're supposed to be doing during yeah. these years. Well, in, in thinking about the developmental side of it, that it is such a time of change going back to, you talked about, it's the second most important and, or, or biggest change that's happening in terms of yeah. all the, yeah. all the chaos, but that leaves them ripe to try lots of different things, which sometimes can be uncomfortable. But I think in youth ministry and working with teenagers, their, their sense of chaos allows them to try different solutions where I think for us as adults, it gets harder. Uh, we just have the one solution and pain has to be pretty high for us to yeah. make any change. Adolescents make change daily. Like they're changing their clothes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and their brains are wired for it, right? Yep. So, right. I mean, because of the underdevelopment of their prefrontal cortex, which is, of course, the decision-making wisdom center of the brain, it's, it's focus, prioritization, impulse control, risk analysis, wisdom, all that kind of higher-order thinking. And that is significantly underdeveloped until the late 20s. Because of that, you could, I would say, wrongly conclude, look, we now have evidence that they're broken and incapable. Yeah. Or you can say, uh, the question I ask people all the time is, do you see teenagers as a problem to be solved or as a wonder to behold? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And I would say when looking at, for example, the underdevelopment of their prefrontal cortex and their ability to make good decisions, you could see that as a indication of their brokenness. Or you can say, what advantage is to that? Yeah. Is that to them? And they need to take risks, which of course is dangerous because they'll sometimes take risks that have difficult negative results, right? They need to take risks in order to learn about themselves and the world. And you and I have brains that are risk averse. We we have, right, we're, we're more settled in our neural pathways and mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not willing to take that many risks anymore. I see that as an advantage to teenagers as yeah. opposed to an indication of their brokenness. Yeah, and that's, that's what we love about the stuff that you say because we feel the same way about teenagers. We're considered a little strange because we loved when our kids were, we had four at the same time in their teens and we loved <laughs> that stage. Even the smell, just smelling their heads. <laughs> oh, that hormonal That's not, that's not anybody's oh, So good. Um, but, oh but it's frustrating when you hear how people speak to teenagers. It does seem like people have them in a holding pattern. Most of the questions yeah. they're asked is like, yeah. you know, what do you want to be when you grow up or what, you know, we see that you have potential for later when they're fully realized people already. Yeah. They might be in yeah. a, a lot of change, but they're they're fully people and they're fully capable of doing a lot of things yeah. in that stage of life. Let me give you a, a little nugget on how I think we got here. Okay. Um, so, you mean like the they, three of us? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No. Okay. No. Uh, our culture. Why oh, we okay. think so neg? Why we generally think so negatively of teenagers? Yeah. I blame one guy. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh wow. Uh oh. Who's that? So he's a dead guy. So okay, I'm going to feel freely feel free to speak very negatively about him. <laughs> Stanley Hall. You, uh, G, Stanley G Stanley Hall, yeah. G, yo, G. So <laughs> Stanley Hall, America's first child psychologist. Um, and the, he, he is why people think that adolescence is only 100 years old, because in 1904, he wrote a two-volume set uh, of books on adolescence and was kind of the first to fully create a definition and a description of them. Um, and he was a hundred percent negative in his description. So, and it's kind of weird. It, this is going to sound like a rabbit trail edited out if you want to, but I, <laughs> but I think it's really important. Okay. Stanley Hall did not develop his definition of adolescence, which by the way, was his shorthand definition was storm and stress. And he would say it is a time of storm and stress and upheaval, rebellion, moodiness, volatility, and it is by evolutionary necessity that it is that way. Now, he didn't come to this conclusion based on a study that he did, which he could have done. Instead, he came to this conclusion by a super faulty pathway. He was, as like a side hobby, really interested in this odd little sub theory of evolution called recapitulation, Mm. which believes that any individual organism will have developmental life stages that mirror the development of that species. So in other words, a human lifespan, according to recapitulation, any individual human will have developmental life stages that mirror the development of the human species. Stanley Hall looked at his understanding of the human species and said, his terms, not mine, there were (laughs) pre-humans, then there were savages, 
and then there's civilized man. And he said, so because he believed in recapitulation, those three stages mm. in order and duration must exist in every human life. So pre-humans for him was children, savages, the short transition period was teenagers, oh. and then civilized <laughs> man is adult. Now, okay, whatever, weird theory, but that theory of recapitulation was completely debunked within about 20 years of his work. And there's no one in the world today who believes in it. And yet our definition and understanding of teenagers is still totally rooted in his definition. So Stanley Hall had a completely problem to be solved perspective, no sense of wonder to behold. The fascinating thing about uh, the research that's been done on uh, adolescent brains in the last 20 years, thanks to the MRI, is that the researchers tend to have a wonder to behold perspective. They see things like the underdevelopment of the prefrontal cortex or the temporal lobes, which are useful or used for uh, understanding and interpreting emotions. And they say, they ask the question, what advantage must that be for mm. teenagers that from an evolutionary perspective, they would say that has made it so those were not weeded out. Now, that's really easy for me from my Christian worldview to say, what advantage might God have intended with those realities that are an advantage to teenagers? And then as a spillover, potentially an advantage to all of us, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the risks that the teenagers in my life, whether it's my kids or teenagers that I work with, the risks they're willing to take, the passion that they're naturally wired for, that can be a gift to all of us rather than an indication of their brokenness. Yeah, that spills really well into kind of the next question we had for you was just, it sound, it, they are amazing. We believe they're amazing. But the reality is it can be hard to deal with teenagers sometimes, <laughs> yeah. right? Yes. Like, yeah. so from a parenting perspective or a teacher or those things are amazing and we can appreciate that that task that they have to separate from us and to take risks. But, but how do we really appreciate and understand what they're going through to, to help that relationship be smoother? Because I think parents feel alone in that too, you know, in dealing yeah. with their, that child that they had that used to just kind of be easily totally. controlled yeah. and perform for their, you know, their friends yeah. now will contradict everything you say. And actually, <laughs> well, mom, um, so, yes. so how do we move that into that under that appreciation? We can understand. And I think that's what we're talking about. The understanding who they are and why they're made that way. How do we move into that appreciation level that also helps us communicate with them and, um, not be so reactive when it's hard to, to, to reach them. Yeah. I do think to be repetitive here, I do think the understanding is the it's big the the big rock in the river, right? I mean, because if I have a good amount of understanding, then I'm able to, like, when they misbehave, uh, I can, I can, like, separate myself from it. It, it, it. I can defang it, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And try not to take it so personally. I, I would also say that uh, kind of, I, this would be a general parenting principle that I want to prioritize quantity time over quality time, mm -hmm. which sounds counterintuitive because obviously what I really want is quality time. 
uh, I really want those meaningful conversations. I really want uh, honesty and, and transparency we with all know each you, other. You can't force it. Right? <laughs> you can't force it. Yeah. And, and so that like the principle that I, my wife and I tried to live with and I try to help others see is that quality time happens in the context of quantity time, right? Yep. And so things like uh, the, the Fuller Youth Institute did some great research a number of years ago um, and uh, about teenagers who hold on to their faith in an active way after their uh, participation in youth group, because we see so many kids who, you know, the research is different on this, but somewhere between 50 and 80% of teenagers who are active in a church youth group move away from church attendance and active faith once they move into their college years. Hmm. And they found a bunch of reasons for why kids might hold on to their faith. But one of the strongest indicators, and they they weren't, they can't say it's causal relationship, but one of the strongest indicators was during their teenage years, did their family have dinner together? Mm -hmm. Which is, and again, that's just about building quantity time in the hopes that some quality stuff will happen in the context mm -hmm. of that. Or right? I would, I would add, drive, offer to drive the carpool because they'll always talk behind your back when they don't think you're yeah. listening. Yeah, and be available right. when they all want to talk at eleven o'clock at night. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so we. We prioritized uh, like individual one parent, one kid um, extended periods of time. So like even in our budgeting as a family, that was a high priority for us. So going on a trip together and extended periods of time uh, that uh, could be meaningful. I, I had given a dad who was that I knew well, and he was having some tension with his, you know, 17 year old son. And I'd said, dude, you really need to prioritize a, a uh, an extensive trip together where the two of you can just have a blast and create some memories. And he didn't do it, but I realized, because my son at the time was about 16, and I realized I, I need to do that. And so we started talking about it. And in Max's senior year of high school, I used airline miles and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we came up with a set of rules to pick where we were going to go together. And we spent a week in Easter Island, which is one of the most remote wow. inhabited place on earth. Right. And it was this amazing experience together that will always be a positive memory for us. But it also created all this opportunity for meaningful connection for me to start to sh see a shift in our relationship to s treating him more like a young adult rather than as a kid, uh, all kinds of benefits to that. Yeah. So it sounds like there's the proximity, the kind of purpose, purposefulness, and then there's, a, and then there's for you as a parent and as a expert of also the needing to think through that understanding piece of needing to think through what's what's the felt need what's really happening here i think about what you were talking about the neurobiology piece and what's happening in the prefrontal cortex of what we know about adolescents too is that they misread emotions and they yes. and they like if you like a spinal tap ref reference right they, oh, nice. they turn it up to 11 um yeah. and so they're going to feel it more intensely and maybe not track exactly how we think the emotion is of what they're experiencing it. I had this with my oldest. Yeah. Uh, he came home one day and I asked him, how are you doing? And he's like, stop emotionally interrogating me. 
<laughs> right. And yeah. and my my first response is, baby, do you know what I do for a living? If I want to do that, it's going to be very different than me asking how your day is. And he's yeah. like, oh, oh, sorry. And it was just kind of that moment of missing missing each other because the emotion was misread and the intensity level in response. Yeah. I could have been like, don't talk to me like that. Show me respect. But luckily, I had a little whisper in my head. Usually, it's Tara's voice. What's the felt need? What's going on? Developmentally, yeah. what's going on? Um, yeah. but, but we need to kind of take that pace uh, and pause ourselves before responding, whether yeah. it's dad, mom, coach. Yeah. And maybe I would nuance what you said just a, a, a slightly different way, because to say they turn it up to 11 that's not a volitional choice on their part. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. They're not in they're not choosing to uh yeah. have this extreme emotion. It's because they don't fully understand the emotion and they're moving from child emotions to adult emotions, they suddenly are flooded with a volume 11 emotion mm -hmm. that they don't know what it is. Yeah. I, one of the important ministries that we can have with our own kids is to normalize their own experience, to help them understand. And just demanding that they say what they're feeling, not that you were doing that, <laughs> but, um, but it, 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 they're often not capable of yeah. doing that. And so when your kid says to when you ask, what are you feeling right now? And they say, or, or if they're moping around the house and you say, why are you so sad? And they say, I don't know. It's easy for us to interpret that as like obfuscation. Is that the yeah, right word? Yeah. Right. Uh, of them trying to cloud it and not be honest, but it is probably more likely to just be truly that they do not know. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're feeling something intensely, but they don't know what it is. The way I sometimes explain that is as children and preteens, they have an emotional painter's palette of <laughs> the primary colors in black and white. And they're trying to paint their emotional experience with this limited set of options. And at puberty, because of the onset of abstract thinking, that gets replaced with a giant painter's palette with hundreds or thousands of colors and a mixing area. And now they're trying to paint their emotional experience with this giant array of emotions and new depths of emotion that they didn't have before, but they're unfamiliar with it. Yeah. And they, I'm going to make picture. a, I'm going to make a generalization here. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that. I find, is that a good word? <laughs> That's a good I word. In our, in our culture that, girls, teenage girls tend to, and there are plenty of boys who are this way, uh, paint their emotional experience with emotions that are way too bold and vivid, right? <laughs> way too intense. Um, and with boys, and a lot of this is because the cultural expectations on them, our culture tends to tell teenage boys and men, they're the only emotion you're allowed to have is rage. No other emotion mm -hmm. is, is acceptable. And so Boys in our culture, and there's plenty of girls who are this way too, tend to use that mixing area and try to blend some emotions. But like a beginning painter, they overdo it and everything comes out to be some form of beige. Brown. Yeah. <laughs> right? It, it, it exactly. looks like uh, Van Gogh's potato eaters. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, like a little cultural. Our history. Occasionally. <laughs> nice. A cultural reference. <laughs> that, that very few people actually know. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, what uh, 
as we think about, we're thinking about teens and understanding teens, what should teens understand about us old people? The weird, smelly old people, either (laughs) in their homes or in their churches or their coaches. Yeah, I guess uh, three thoughts come to mind. Uh, First is, hey, teenager, the majority of adults actually do want the best for you. And it might not always seem that way because you make adults uncomfortable and (laughs) you make them feel things they don't want to feel. And you bring up past trauma unintentionally for them and all kinds of stuff. But they do, most of them do want the best for you. Second thing would be the majority do not fully understand what life is like for you, but they don't realize that. And the third thing I would say is related to that. Most parents, and I think this would be true of coaches and other people too, most people look back unintentionally at their own teenage years with either utopian or dystopian lenses and then project that onto the teenagers in their lives and assume it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's very normal for for parents of teenagers to either look back at their own teenage years and say, those were great years. I didn't have all the weight and stress and anxiety of my life these days. It was just wonderful. Of of course, that's not the whole picture, (laughs) but that's what they remember. And then they project that onto their kids and say, why are you always sad? Don't you know these are the best years of your life? It's never going to get better than this. That is not helpful. (laughs) No, teenagers thinking my life sucks. If it doesn't get better than this, I don't know what I'm going to do. Or people, adults look back at their own teenagers when they had some pain or some trauma, some loneliness, some abuse, something like that. And they assume that the teenagers in their lives today are also living through the hardest years of their lives, which of course is also not the fully accurate picture. So teenagers, I think, can be helped by having some patience for the adults (laughs) in their lives uh, who often have those misunderstandings. Yeah, that's helpful because uh, I think a lot of times the the conversation needs to go both ways. The understanding needs to go both ways. And I, I think as an adult, I don't necessarily think about that. Like, how am I helping my under, my adolescent understand me and my assumptions? Who you are, yeah. Yeah. And openness. Yeah. yeah. So uh, one, uh, one last thing. I have a question for you. One um, last question. One okay. last question. So, I mean, I, I have tons of them. Like, do you really give away pieces of your beard as swag at conferences? <laughs> and, I mean, those are, those are, no. those are, those are weird questions. Uh, this is, this is a little less weird. Um, what would, uh, what would you say, what would 2022 Marco say to the Marco with the purple hair and mohawk? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I wish people could see you right now because you look super professional. I mean, Beardy has gotten, the name of Marco's beard <laughs> is Beardy and it's, it's grown immensely since we last saw each other. Uh, and you look very professorial. Uh, and so I'm wondering <laughs> back to that purple haired mohawked kid out of Michigan, what would you, what would you want him to know from Marco in 2022? In a, in a broad stroke way. So not necessarily about, uh, working with teenagers. Uh, I would tell my younger self, 
prioritized character development over skill development. Mm. And I think I had that backward. I really prioritized skill development uh, and assumed that character development would happen on its own. Mm. Well, an example of that yeah. um, is that when I, when I was uh, first getting to know you guys, I was coming to a hard realization that my lack of mercy was a giant character gap for me. I had been promoted and given raises because of my decisiveness. And I was taught by some mentors wrongly that my lack of compassion and mercy was the strength of my leadership. And when I realized the lie of that, it took me a good, it's still something I'm unlearning, but it took me 10 years of intentional work to address that in my life. And that had giant spillover effect into my parenting too, mm. right? Because if I don't have compassion, if I don't have mercy and grace for my teenagers, then um, if either the ones I'm working with or the ones in my life, then I'm going to be very ineffective and uh, short-lived in in my ability to be with them. Right? Yeah, it's that. Yeah, it's, it's we all that have process. To, yeah, and we have to give each other grace because that time of life, especially, I mean, all of them, but that that time of life requires a lot of grace from us and for yeah. for ourselves. We all, I mean, that's the thing about yes. adolescence. We've all lived through it. Or we're in it, or we're about to, right? Yes. So yeah, yeah it's pretty common life experience, um, and I think I, we, you know, I would say one. Can I interrupt and say yeah, one more please. thing that's related to this? I think the vast majority of parents, and this is understandable, but the vast majority of parents are parenting from a place of fear, at least some of the time, but they're often not aware of that because. One of the biggest fears that parents have is this whole uh, kind of an imposter syndrome, right? I, I don't know what I'm doing, but I see people who who look like they do know what they're doing. And so I can't really even be honest about that with myself because to do so makes me vulnerable and acknowledges that I'm not suited for this. And the reality is, man, parenting teenagers is one of the hardest things in the world. Yeah. Uh, and so to, to acknowledge your fear and I kind of think of it almost like my fear is my, my little dangerous friend, right? It's this, <laughs> it's this pet that could destroy me, but if I acknowledge it, I can kind of set it aside and then I can move toward the people in my life, whether that's teenagers or my wife or my coworkers or whatever, from a place of love and compassion rather than a place of fear. That's fabulous. That's, that's a good piece of wisdom for parents in any stage, but yeah, yeah. we will. I like that. My little dangerous friend. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> and, and how not to be reactive with it, but to pet it. Well, it. yeah, I don't know about, I don't know about that. No, okay. no but maybe the metaphor but, goes too far. No, we just, we could talk to you all day, Marco. We could talk to, we'll have to do this again because I know I can, I can sense a lot of, a lot more questions bubbling up in David. Yeah, <laughs> like to I want to hear about sure. technology accelerants and uh, I want to yeah. hear about all those fun things. Yeah. That's right. Um, 
but we'll probably have to set aside some of it for another time. We're going to have to go back and listen just for our own enjoyment and to gather some some new wisdom. You've got some great stuff to share. Um, but we also just wanted to to send a hello to Jeannie. We love your wife. Oh, yeah. She says hi. Yeah. She was such such a good friend and mentor to us when we were in California. And I think we left California right after your first child was born. So you're one of our first friends so. that became parents. So you're yeah. You know, kind of a mentor from the early days for us. And so it's such wow. a such a pleasure so to hear you and all the work you've done since we've been apart these yes. years. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So send Beautiful. love to your family. Do you have anything else to add, David? Yeah. I just want to make sure you plug your five minutes with Marco podcast that it's, <laughs> it's just, I, I like, I like to say it this way. It's like Tara. It's short, but powerful. <laughs> I love it. Hey, any comparison to Tara's good with me. <laughs> and any other, uh, any other things? What are what else are you working on? What's new in terms of publishing and work? I mean, most of my work is is again in that area of developing youth workers, right? So it's coaching and publishing for youth workers. Um, I do have you know a handful of books for parents, so though you can find all of those uh, online uh, or on Amazon or something like that. Yep. So it's the end year with the youth cartel. So yes. uh, where you're instigating <laughs> right. so where revolution you. of youth ministry. Yeah, exactly. I, I still that's have right. my uh, my panda T-shirt that I won from uh, oh, some great. Internet uh, <laughs> contest that you had. So I'd encourage people to go to the website. You could get interesting swag, not his beard, but other nope, swag. Not for sale. And no. uh, and they can reach you at your Twitter handle. I've always wanted to say that Marco uh, Marco's beard. And it's with a K <laughs> M-A-R-K-O-S-B-E-A-R-D. Yeah, we'll add links for you that know, stuff. The weird reason for that handle is because I had a, a a long period where I refused to be on Twitter, but at some point I started a joke Twitter account, <laughs> Marco's Beard, that were all tweets from my beard. <laughs> and I did that, I, yeah, the earliest two or three years, it was all silly tweets from my beard. And at some point I realized I've got a couple thousand youth workers following me on this. I suppose I should just make it my actual Twitter feed. Yeah. So uh, does your beard have any wisdom as we wrap up for us? <laughs> no, my beard is fairly it's devoid of wisdom. Silent, <laughs> it's silent, silent beard it's, today. Uh, it's retired. Yes. Well. We're so That's thankful right. for the time that you were able to give us Marco and uh, kind of helping us begin the continued adventure of understanding adolescence and uh, and the unique blessing that they are in our lives. Thanks, guys. It yeah. was really good. And to the listeners, blessings on you. May you grow in patience <laughs> and understanding for the teenagers amongst you who are wonders to behold. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We invite you to visit our show notes page and website for more resources and information. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends. That would be a huge favor to us. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye.